0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting new books. And we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm very happy to say we have David Reddish on the show. And we'll be talking about his book, The Mind Within the Brain, How We Make Decisions and How Those Decisions Go Wrong. I can tell you that when I saw this book, it was not hard for me to make the decision to want to talk to David because decisions is, it's just something that I, I'm fascinated by because as I grow older, I think that, that fewer and fewer of my decisions are actually conscious or, or they're at least not logical. I don't, I don't really understand often in hindsight, why I've done something or decided something I've done. So any any sort of light that could be shed on my, what for me are obscure mental processes, I was very uh, happy to uh, receive. So David, I want to congratulate you on writing the book and I want to welcome you to the show. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a great privilege to be here. (laughs) Well, thank you very much.
0: David, maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, Well, uh, I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota. I've been here dozen years now, more than that, Um, but uh, my background actually comes from a literary background. I was originally a um, double major in computer science and uh, creative writing at the Johns Hopkins University and then did graduate work in computer science and then transitioned into neuroscience as I became more and more fascinated by real brains, and uh, I've been been here at the University of Minnesota, as I said, for, for a little over 12 years now.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's interesting. I didn't know that about your background. Uh, I remember when I was an undergraduate, uh, we read, I think it was Daniel Dennett or somebody, mm-hmm. and he talked about this analogy between machines that make decisions or think and uh, the wet works in our head. Do people still work a lot on that? I mean, is that still a, an analogy? Yeah, that no,
1: that's, yeah. that's a very good analogy. And in fact, I think that's in some sense the key the key analogy to to what this book is in some sense about, because there's a feeling that historically that humans, people in general, have not wanted to be machines. But the data that we are physical beings is fundamentally overwhelming. Yeah. And so what I really has, you know, came to the conclusion of is that... So. I, I start from the sentence, the brain is a decision-making machine, and I thought the hard part of that sentence was going to be the word brain, because that's all the neuroscience. Or maybe it was the word decision-making, because as you say, decision-making is this really complicated thing. It turns out that the hardest part of that sentence is the word machine. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to be a machine, and how can we still be, how can we be physical beings and still be, you know, still have free will, still be able to make a choice? How can we still be people that can choose? Because we do choose. There's no question that humans choose. And so how can we be people that still choose, but yet be physical beings at the same time? Mm -hmm. And that interaction was in large part what what drove me into to, to, to spending, as you said earlier, all the time on this book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that question, you know, it's a card, this Cartesian question about what, what what is it that makes it seem as if we are not machines um, when the evidence is overwhelming that we are some kind of machine? Uh, and yeah, if, if you don't think, believe in magic, I guess I would I say. I think
1: part of the problem is that we have... In term, you know when we have these scientific discussions, we have these scientific discussions about very simple machines, thermostats and things like that, and we're not thermostats. <laughs> I mean, we have thermostats within us, but we're much more complicated, and I think a large part of what is happening now is there's two kind of pieces on this machine side that's been happening that set this up and allowed us to now talk about neuroscience from this perspective. And the first of those two is that things have gotten very complicated. We now have very complicated machines that do make decisions, GPS systems that will help us navigate, and they can decide what's the best route. And that's, you know, that's a complex algorithm, but it's very complex, and it becomes very hidden as we start to look at it. And the second of those is it's become very common in science fiction to accept the idea that there are, in fact, machines, that make decisions. You look at, you know, Commander Data from Star Trek, for example, or the Cylons in the recent Battlestar Galactica where, you know, everybody says they're machines, but nobody denies that they're dangerous decision makers. Mm -hmm. So I think the issue is that we have to be careful with the word machine because everybody gets scared that it means you're not complex that you're simple mm-hmm. and we're not simple <laughs> we're very very complex
0: mm-hmm. tell me about it so well, one of the things let's let's continue conceptually just for a second before we, get, before we get to the heart of the book one of the things about this word decision is it implies that uh the result is not determinative that is if you start a, an algorithm let's say that it will have uh, at least two possible outcomes um and we don't think of machines that way do we
1: well we don't think of machines that way when we talk about them, but in fact, anybody who's interacted with computers knows that the computer doesn't always do exactly what you think it's going to do. Mm-hmm. And there are, in fact, many, many cases where we are now starting to experience interactions with machines that are that have multiple outcomes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that those outcomes are not quite so simple. I mean, we all play, I don't know if we all do, but my kids certainly do, you know, play you know, games with uh, computer characters, mm-hmm. and these computer characters interact with you, mm-hmm. and they're not. You know, in truth, is that it's very easy to create a computer character that's going to be not do the same thing every time. You put a random number generator, right? In, yeah, you know. But I think that we're beyond. You know, that's not really what you're talking about. What you're talking about is the idea that there is, there's an algorithm, there's a process that drives through to that decision-making component. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's talk about
0: decision itself. Uh, you, uh, I really like this about the book, and I can ask this question, and I know you have an answer. What's a decision?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the, I think that's a great question, because I think that, that, for me, was one of the, the key starting points that, for me, opened up the book, which was that we needed a way to define a decision operationally, in a way that we could study, that we wouldn't end up getting trapped into a philosophical argument about what is a decision. So I'm just going to start with a definition. I want to define a decision as selecting an action. And that has a very interesting consequence because it means that both simple decisions, simple actions, shaking your hand out when it's you're trying, you've got a match lit, and you know the match burns to your fingers and you have this reflex, that becomes a decision. But it's also a decision if you're deciding which college to go to.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because in the end, you are taking an action. You are sending a letter saying, yes, I will go to college A and not to college B. You know, Getting married, I like to use the example of getting married. Getting married is an action. You stand up in front of a community and you say, I do. Mm-hmm. That is taking an action. It's a very complex action. <laughs> that action has usually a very long lead time. But it's still fundamentally in the end, selecting an action.
0: hmm Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have that operational definition. That implies, kind of as you said, we talked about this in the pre-interview, that there are different kinds of decisions with different mechanisms. Uh, A reflexive choice of an action is different than one that involves lots of data gathering and then some sitting on the data and then perhaps some computations on the data and then running it through various algorithms and then finally determining what you're going to do.
1: Right. Right. Um, I think that once you, once we define decision-making as this kind of action selection, the question becomes, what is the information processing that the person or the animal or the, the agent is doing to get to that? And Fundamentally, the reason that we have brains in the first place is to do a better job of making decisions. I mean, animals that had better brains and made better decisions were better at reproducing. Mm-hmm. So... One of the thing, the question then becomes, what is the, how do we generalize from our past to create our future? Mm-hmm. And there are many ways you can do that. And it turns out when you do that, in the you look at the different ways you do that, you find these multiple, I like to call them multiple decision-making systems.
0: Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit about those. Let's begin with the very simplest of them, which are reflexes, I guess, right? You know, yeah. the knee reflex or whatever it's called—I can't recall—but but, but uh, you know, you hit somebody on the yeah. knee, and their knee says, um, or the match, the, the case where you have an instinctive response to to pain. You 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 um, uh, what is the right word for it? You you, you twitch or um, sure. res- yeah. So pull so, your so,
1: hand out of a fire.
0: Exactly. Example. So what are, yeah. what are yeah. how, mechanically how do those occur in the brain,
1: and how so the- why do they occur that way? Right. So reflexes are, in some sense, the simplest case. I think the first thing to say about reflexes is that what they're doing is they're taking an evolutionarily learned timescale, that what it is is you as a member of a species has learned over evolutionary time that in this situation, this when these stimuli are occurring, you have to react very quickly. And so you don't have time to learn to pull your hand out of the fire, Your reflex has to just do that and has to do it really fast. And it turns out, in large part, it happens actually in the spinal cord. Hmm. The processing is very, very fast. And the reason is because, actually, again, this comes down to this physical brain point. The transmission time to get the sensory signal all the way up to the brain and back actually takes time. Mm -hmm. And if you could do it faster by Sending it to the spinal cord and having the spinal cord piece just react, you can react more quickly. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, we say, well, okay, humans is, you know, how many milliseconds is it going to matter? When you start to talk about giraffes and whales and things with, you know, very long distances to get from one end of the animal to the other, those times can matter. And those times actually become very problematic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, go ahead.
0: So, I was going to say, this is almost software that has become hardware. Or it just never became software. That is, it has no degrees of freedom, really. it's very
1: dangerous to be... (laughs) Actually, this is something I think is a very good question to ask, is how valid is the software-hardware analogy? Because when computers first started to get complex enough to look at these kind of things, there was a very big... It was a hypothesis. I mean, it was a scientific hypothesis that we were software running on the hardware of the brain. Mm -hmm. And I think in large part the hope was because then we could build something out of something that wasn't brains and get just the same cognition and consciousness and all that other stuff. The problem is it turns out that's not correct. Mm -hmm. There's a much tighter coupling between the neural mechanisms and the information processing that's going on within those neural mechanisms in, in wetware than there is in the kind of computers that, you know, for example, is sitting on our desks. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that it's, it's, I'm less comfortable talking about it in terms of software and hardware. And I think more the question is, what is the neural mechanism that is driving that? Mm-hmm.
2: But mm-hmm.
1: you're right, it's, it's, a very, it's a very inflexible system, mm-hmm. for reflex. And right. I think that flexibility, that balance between flexibility and... Pre-wiredness, you know that, that it somehow is is built genetically mm-hmm. before you even you know have the experience of um um you know putting your hand in a fire. You your body will say, "My hand's being burned, pull it back."
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an it's an old distinction, and it came before, of course, software and hardware. Kant talks about it. I can't remember exactly the terms he uses, but he talks about things that basically we know before we have any experience. That's right. Uh, and Locke talks about it as well. That there are these things that that um, that seem to be, uh, you know, again, these metaphors get in our way built into us. Before we experience anything, we quote unquote know what to do in the presence of a really hot hand. Right.
1: And yeah. I, I like to think of this in terms of again coming back to this idea of what a decision making algorithm, what a decision making system in the brain is doing, is it's taking information from the past to do a better job of create selecting actions in the future.
2: Mm-hmm. What
1: the reflex is doing is it's taking information in your evolutionary past,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right, that you have evolved over many, many generations to produce circuits which react very quickly Mm -hmm. to these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. There's a linguist, a French
0: linguist, who talks about a kind of basic distinguish uh, in in the evolution of language, a a distinction between relevant information and irrelevant information. And we have to parse these things. So in a certain sense, what the brain has said is fire on your hand is always relevant 100% of the time.
1: Well, it is and it isn't. And in fact, that leads us to the idea that we're not just reflexes. And one of my favorite reasons that I like like to call, a lot of my colleagues are not comfortable calling a reflex a decision. Um, Once you've defined action selection as the key, then a reflex becomes a decision Mm -hmm. system. But I think it's important to think of it as one of the decision systems because otherwise you can't understand what suppressing a reflex is. Mm -hmm. Because suppressing a reflex, which we can often do, is another decision system, which is another neural circuitry often much, much more complex, that has come in and said, I know that the you know, your reflex wants to pull your hand out, but right now it's really important that we do something and our hand is gonna get burned and we're gonna, you know, bypass it. We're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna continue it. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite example of that is uh, in the science fiction novel Dune where they define humanity as the willingness to keep your hand in the pain box. Mm-hmm. Right. that you have the ability to have your your indomitable will, which we can talk about what, what we mean by will, <laughs> um, as a means of forcing you not to show the reflex.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we do this kind of suppression all the time, and sometimes it's institutionalized. I teach a class on military history, and one of the things I point out, that uh, modern militaries strive to uh, eliminate or tame the... I, I would call it an instinct or reflex of flight in the face so the of danger. The
1: instinct of flight turns out to be a different system. And that's very interesting. It's very important to separate out the very simple reflexes we're talking about from these much more complicated instinctual components, which leads us to what I would call the, what I've called the Pavlovian system in the book. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I'm that's probably a bad choice of words but it is what Pavlov's dogs were doing. Mm -hmm. The system has lots of words, and if you ask a dozen different people, you'll get different answers to what the word, the right word for this system is, but the fundamental information processing is very agreed upon across the fields. One of the things that's interesting about this, this field of decision-making is, it draws from many, many different fields, you know, neuroscience, psychology, economics, Um, you know, business decision theory, um, lots and lots of these different computer science, robotics, philosophy. And what you end up with is that all of these systems have converged on the same kind of different components. They give them all different names, Mm -hmm. but they end up being very similar. Mm -hmm.
0: So in the very first one we talked about, a reflex, you already have the quote-unquote knowledge or information that is required to make the algorithm run as it should. Right, fire bad and against hand. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Right. So then, in this more complicated one, uh, does it require it requires the it requires building? A, a, I always w- think in terms of computers. It requires building a table. You know, it requires actually the acquisition of information.
1: Right. Right. So yeah. the, the key I like to think of in terms of learning
0: uh-huh.
1: that the key is that the other systems. There you are know, three other action selection systems that I identify in the book. Yeah, go ahead and tell us about those. Yeah. One of which is what I've called the Pavlovian or perhaps emotional system would be a good term for it. The second system we call the procedural system and the third, the deliberative. Mm -hmm. And these three systems all learn differently. And this is part of the point about, I was saying earlier about what you're doing is take generalizing from the past to the future and how you do that generalization turns out to be give you different answers and if you can identify the right system to use at the right time you will actually be more advantaged Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so the emotional or pavlovian system what it does is it has a underlying response and it learns a situation in which that response is a good thing to do my favorite example of this is running from the lion You don't get a chance to learn to run from the lion. You've got to get that right the first time. (laughs) That's true. The flight you were talking
0: about—it's like they say about uh, test pilots—they only really ever make one mistake. Exactly.
1: (laughs) The the key is that when you are, what you can learn is you can learn that, like when a lion is stalking you, it'll make a rustle in the grass. And so you could learn this from talking to somebody, from maybe having your own close call, or maybe observing some other animal get eaten. The key is that what you then learn is the rustle in the grass produces this internal, this Pavlovian system says, "Uh uh-oh, we're in a situation where a lion is stalking us. And now you then essentially... The old, the old story would be release the action. I don't really like that word, but you, you have the emotional response of fear, and then you run. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, exactly what was happening with Pavlov's dogs, where a sound would happen before they got fed, and they learned that when the sound was happening, then it actually meant that food was coming, and they would start to salivate and get hungry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that's most interesting to me is that the, this emotional system is fundamentally important to our social interactions. People who don't have normal emotional systems don't interact with other people normally. In fact, they're sociopaths. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have this system, but this system isn't enough. We know that that's only, this is just the emotional component. But it is a very important component, and it's very important to say that's part of you.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: the, the set of things that you have learned are frightening or are not frightening. They're different from me and from you. Mm-hmm. And so this, the, the, one of the big issues that comes up in this kind of decision-making literature and has come up in a number of other kind of popular science books on this kind of topic is the idea that somehow you are one of these systems, the others are not you. Mm-hmm. And I feel very strongly, I think that one of the points I try to make in the book is all of these are you, mm-hmm. you know, that, that system getting scared, that's you, mm-hmm. you know, you're the one feeling the fear mm-hmm. at that moment. And I think it's important to to access that.
0: Mm-hmm. So just to be clear about this, then there are a number of, um, there are a number of, I guess I would call them behave. Let's just call them behaviors and they are more or less uh they again and the language is difficult the, the triggers for those are not given they are learned so you could teach somebody to be incredibly afraid i mean this is an actual you know you could teach one to be incredibly afraid of a teddy bear yes yeah and then right. and then that standard behavior which is flight would be engaged correct yes. so the,
1: the 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 underlying emotional relationship is how pre-built it is is a debate. There's a lot of issues that we, you know, subtleties one would have to get into there. But the basic structures, you know, are, are all emotions the same between people? That's not clear. Um, but the basic structures are pretty similar. And for our purposes, I think we can start with them talking about them as being that the the fundamental, you know, fight-flight you know what is it the, the four F's? Right? Yes, uh, right. The four fight, F's: yes. flight, yes. and the uh, other F. Fear and reproduction. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, fight, flight, freeze, and reproduction. That's the that's it. Uh-huh. Um, you know those are the social interactions that we are as that we need as part of ourselves. Uh uh-huh. Um, the thing is that there are other systems as well that are going to do more general learning, um, and those turn out to be really key to. Um, mammalian learning, not just human, but other mammals as well. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So then are we ready to move on then to the procedural
1: level? Sure. Okay. Um, sometimes it's, it's, I don't know whether it'd be better to go to, to procedural or to deliberative next. They're often talked about kind of as, as a pair. Um, let's actually start with deliberative, because okay. I think that's easier than, than it's, it's, it's the one we're more conscious of, and then we can come back to procedural. So deliberative, you know, when we you know, just do introspection. Introspection is, of course, very dangerous historically. But when we do introspection about decision-making, we often think that what we do is deliberate over choices, that we create a future that we imagine. Um, So, for example, if you're thinking about which college you're going to go to, right? what you do is you imagine which job you're going to take. I had a, a postdoc who had two job offers, and spent months going back and forth between okay if i go to university one then i'll be in this small town and i'll have this life and this you know or no wait what if i go to university two i'll be in this big city and this will you know i just did that over a water heater (laughs) (laughs) it took up two days of my life (laughs) go ahead But what's interesting about it is when you do that, what you do is you construct a serial future. You construct a complete imagined future, and then you evaluate that future. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, first of all, that's exactly what happens, that you do, in fact, construct that imagined future. Second, it turns out we know what brain structures are involved, and people who are missing those brain structures because they've been damaged, for example... Um, don't do that imagined future. And it turns out that if we look at those same brain structures in non-human animals, rats and monkeys, we find that they are also imagining Hmm. the future. Hmm. And that kind of brings up the other half of the the mind within the brain story, which is if we're physical brains, we can read minds by listening to brains. Mm -hmm. And that means that if we can actually access those brains through some technology, we can, we can identify what an animal, whether it be human or non-human, is thinking. Mm-hmm. And now let's be careful with that because right now the technology available for humans is very, very broad. It's like trying to, you know, figure out who's doing what when flying over an airplane at 30,000 feet. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't see a lot of the detail. But that doesn't mean that's a technology limitation. Mm-hmm. That's not a um, the mind isn't there limitation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, see. so one of the keys, the key to deliberation, is that it really is the construction of that imagined future, and that evaluation. The problem with it is it's very very slow, and so and it's not going to happen the same way every time. So, if you're going to need to do something the same way every time, think uh, playing a musical instrument, or You know, a sports star, Mm -hmm. right? He's got to swing the bat or swing the golf club, you know, at exactly the right way, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Or throw the football just right, you know, pick your favorite sport. They're all going to be the same issue. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You need a different system. And it turns out that that other system is what we call procedural learning, because what you're learning is a procedure, And you don't actually construct that imagined future. What you do is you recognize the situation by a categorization process. And from that categorization process, you then release the action that you've learned. Now, this can be any action, unlike the Pavlovian system, where it's a pre, you know, it's an emotional action that you can't, you can run from the lion, but you can't do jumping jacks. Right <laughs> in the procedural system yeah, in the procedural system, you can train anything. The problem is it's like, it's a habit. I mean, this is sometimes called the habit system,, mm-hmm. and that becomes very hard to break mm-hmm. right if you've If you've learned that in this moment, the right thing to do is to respond violently, for example,, mm-hmm. right, then you need to actually have your deliberative system needs to be online enough to come in and say, no, no, no. I know that we've trained ourselves to do this, but we're actually, I know it looks like the same situation, and we've trained ourselves to react procedurally to this, but in fact it's not.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so you get this very interesting kind of multiple pathways, multiple, almost multiple selves. I don't know if that I'm really comfortable with that word yet, mm-hmm. but multiple decision-making systems, each of which is selecting a different action.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you have this competition between these systems happen, you know, to try to decide what's the right choice.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me that, I mean, that's a fascinating way to look at it. And I think that you're right, that many people who have thought deeply about this and going back to Locke and Kant, including them, have divided things into this this sort of way that is between reflex and up through deliberation. Not not exactly that they're hierarchy, they're different systems.
1: But, no, they're not a hierarchy. And yeah. I think that's very important. In fact, one of my one of my current kind of things I keep arguing with people about is this idea that somehow one of these is privileged over the other. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's right. I think they are all, they're all the best thing to do at certain times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes the reflex is the best response and sometimes, you know, because deliberation is slow. If you yeah. were just a deliberative system, you would react much too slowly. You could never hit a baseball deliberatively. Yeah,
0: <laughs> right. that's pretty funny, actually. So the one thing that occurs to me, and this is just anecdotal, in my, in my uh, you know, I know a lot of people that get in, they develop these procedures. Mm-hmm. These procedures, we call them habits, uh, and they find them deeply, deeply satisfying. That is, there's this arbitrary behavior, let's call it behavior X. Yep. And uh, then they have uh, they have built up a a, a, a uh, kind of unconscious competence at it. They just do yes. it in a certain right. in a certain situation. And they find it deeply, deeply satisfying. Yes. Regardless yes. of how harmful it is for them.
1: Right. Yeah. So there, there's 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 so we can get in. Let, let let's come let's come back to harm later. In this okay. Dialogue. All right. But. But I think you're absolutely right, and I think this is part of my point about it not being that, that, that this is all part of you. I mean, when, when a, a sports star talks about um, you know, being in the zone, oh, yeah. right? they don't talk about an out-of-body experience. In fact, quite the opposite. They usually talk about really feeling in the moment and yeah. feeling confident in the moment.
0: Yeah, um, cold flow—it's sometimes called, isn't it? Do you know that expression? Yes, yes. Exactly. Cold flow—I've experienced that myself.
1: Not for a while, <laughs> but <laughs> when again. you're in the flow, it's—it's really—it it feels right. And what I think you're doing when you're in a, in a flow like that is you're recognizing that your procedural system is on track
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that it's working really, really well. And of course, you have the whole issues with lots of sports stars say the key to this stuff is don't think. Mm-hmm. Right, Because if you think too much right what you what we call thinking in that sense in that in that description, I think all of this is a kind of thinking, but the kind of thinking that you know a a sports star is talking about at that moment, you know when they're saying don't think is deliberation, they're saying, don't try to deliberate over the choices you know if you've trained it up trust trust yourself and I, I think this is really important that if you've trained it up because there's a lot of people who've tried to argue, well, you know being in the moment is the right thing and don't think and et cetera. But, you know, you only learn how to hit a baseball by practicing it over and over and right. over and yeah. over again. Right. You know, it doesn't, or playing a musical instrument. I try to tell my kids, you know, you're not going to be good at it yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Keep trying and you will get good at it, you know. Right.
0: Right. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating, I mean, I I know that from my own experience with sports and music and things like this, that, that is one of the things that you finally learn once you receive, you know, you become mature at it is that you have to do it, not think about it. There's no, I like to tell, you know, there is no real theory of playing the piano. There is playing the piano. There's no theory of basketball. There's playing basketball. And that's well, how theory- you get good at it. I mean, you can think about it. That's true. But somebody that knows everything about basketball still can't play basketball.
1: You have to what's do interesting, it. <laughs> exactly. But what's interesting about that is that you need a way to jumpstart it. And, so what often happens, and we, we see this. I mean, this actually, there's a tremendous amount of very, very good animal learning work on this, on this issue. What you see is that initial learning in a new environment or with a new task is very deliberative. Mm-hmm. And it transitions from that deliberative to that procedural with experience. The what you find is, and and I should say, when we when people first started talking, looking at this, you know, fifty years ago, everybody thought it would go the other way around, because everybody thought that the deliberative stuff was hard. But what you end up being is that the deliberation is really good when you know the theory, but you have you don't know the moment,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so what you end up doing is you end up working slowly at it, and then it builds; it automates over time. Actually, one of my favorite examples of this is driving to work, right? The first time you drive to work, you're deliberating over it. You're conscious about it. You're thinking about it. You're not thinking about other things. But you do it every day for weeks or months or years, right? And what you find is you're driving to work and thinking about other things. You're thinking about, you know, your kid's soccer game or the test you have to write or whatever. And you can even accidentally drive yourself to work or your friend to work instead of the airport. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, do you know this theory of the stages of learning? I did a friend of mine told me about it that begins with, so say you want to learn how to do, let's say you want to learn how to play basketball and you begin with unconscious incompetence. In other words, you don't even know what you don't know. Right. So so you have no idea how bad you are. And then somebody teaches you that is this deliberative moment and says, and then you are consciously incompetent. You understand that you don't know how to do it. And then you practice for a while And then you are consciously competent. You're still thinking about how you're doing it. But eventually you reach this stage of unconscious competence. You can just do it. I mean, like, I give the example of basketball because I played for many, many, many years. And so I get out there and it's like, we have an expression for it, it's like riding a bicycle. Yes, But you
1: just just do it. You don't know how you do it. You just do it. Well, I'll tell you, we do know how you do it. (laughs) And the the way you do it is that there's a structure called the basal ganglia Uh that has learned Your your cortex is, I mean, I think it's important to come back to the neuroscience on this because, in fact, we know these neural systems. And this is a lot of why I say it's not just the mind. It's the mind within the brain because, in fact, we know the systems that do it. And we do know a lot about how you do things like play basketball Mm -hmm. and how that unconscious competence arrives because what it is is it's a learning system that has learned this procedural sequence where the cortex is keeping track of the situation and saying at this moment the right action is, you know, this is the way the world is at this moment, and your um, basal ganglia are responding to that and saying, okay, at this moment the right action is to take this, and the next action is going to be that, and here's the timing of it, and we even know how it's learned. It's learned through dopamine, which is a neuromodulator, mm-hmm. and that um, that neuromodulator actually drives one of the most fascinating things over the last I want to say 20 years has been the discovery that the learning component is not about pleasure. It's about do it again. Yeah, no, that, and that's so that there's a intriguing. difference between the, that was the right thing. You finally did exactly the right motion. Do that again. And, the, oh, I like that, or that's a good idea, or whatever. And those are actually separable systems.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting that you say that because, again, one of the things that I've kind of come to realize in adulthood is the things that I find the most rewarding are not things that give me a kind of rush of pleasure, but they are habits that I have. They are things I can do again. And there's something so comforting about it. I don't, I don't know how to explain it psychologically, I don't really have the vocabulary for it, but they're so comfortable. To be able to do the same thing again. Now, of course, the trick there is, and the danger is, is that you want to, and we're coming to harm again, or good, is that you want to learn the right things. Right. Right. Because, it, again, this is my experience, and you probably can shed some light on it. Sometimes you will develop one of these unconscious competences, these, uh, these procedures, that actually is quite harmful to you, but yeah. you still find it pleasurable. Can well, you talk a little bit about
1: that? I can, and I think it's important. I mean, we're starting to come now to kind of what I think of as the dysfunction perspective, which is that if we are physical beings, which, as I say, I, I really the evidence is solid at this point, then just as your car can break down, you can break down. Mm-hmm. And the, what happens when a decision-making system breaks down, it makes a bad decision. Mm-hmm. And so what we end up with is this idea that there are, there's an underlying, there are ways there are what we call failure modes. Actually is the term I like to use. And sometimes I call it vulnerabilities because some people don't like the, the word failure in there. And I don't mean it in the sense of failure, like you fail a test. I mean, failure mode in the say, same way that an engineer would talk about a failure mode of an engine wing, mm-hmm. you know, an airplane wing, for example. and, that failure mode is, there are a number of them we've been able from first principles to go in and identify. And so what's interesting is multiple failure modes can lead to multiple problems. I like to say addiction is not a disease, it's a symptom. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different perspective from the way I think a lot of uh, a lot of scientists have been looking at that's it. It's funny
0: because that's just what the people in AA say,
1: <laughs> in a weird sort of way. They say, um,
0: you know, your your you're drinking is a symptom of another problem. Right. Yeah.
1: And and so the issue here, and and the reason that I think it's important to identify it as a symptom is that what we need to do to to, to solve things like you know alcoholism or problem gambling or PTSD is to identify or OCD or any of these underlying, you know, psychiatric disorders, we need to identify what is the underlying failure mode, what has gone wrong with the neural mechanism. And you can see, actually, there's some evidence now that there are multiple mechanisms that can lead to the same problem, the same symptom, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: right? One of the examples we like to talk of, there's a, a new field that's coming out and the term is computational psychiatry. I apologize for that term. I'm not going to defend it. I wasn't the one who came up with it. It's not what it really means is looking at psychiatry as vulnerabilities, as dysfunctions in the underlying neural system.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And the idea is that looking at the information processing is the key component So it's a computational question, Mm -hmm. right? What has gone wrong with the information processing of your brain that has made it so that you're now doing something that you or we think is wrong?
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, One of my favorite examples, kind of a common example in the people who work on this kind of issue is to say, you know, imagine if you went to a hospital with chest pain and the doctor says, great, you're a chest pain patient. Twenty percent of our chest pain patients need an acid, and twenty percent need open heart surgery, and we'll try both. <laughs> you know, having having an underlying knowledge of you know that 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 the chest pain is a symptom of you know dysfunction, right? One is a you know dysfunction a stomach dysfunction of producing you know excess acid, or a uh, you know heart dysfunction of actually not beating correctly, right? You can have somebody who is, you know, you mentioned Alcoholics Anonymous, somebody who is drinking could be drinking because there's a dysfunction in the do-it-again component. It mm-hmm. could be because there's a dysfunction in the situation recognition component. It could be because there's a dysfunction in the hedonistic, you know, the the, 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 the pleasure hedon- hedonic component. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of those is going to require different treatments. Mm-hmm. And so it's not one can't, I think, One of the things that, that, and I have to be very careful because I'm a PhD, not an MD, Mm -hmm. and one should never take, one should take what I'm saying in terms of how the system works, but one should not take anything I say in terms of what to go, like, do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One should always go talk to one's own medical professional. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's likely that different people are going to require different treatments. Mm -hmm. And so if we could have some sort of clinical equivalent of the EKG, we could identify these subsets of patients. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Is there any hope of that? I'm sorry, say that again?
0: Is there any hope of that?
1: Yes, absolutely. There is is a lot of work happening right now on it. Um, I'm not sure. There's there aren't any specific cases where we can say this is the, I like to say we need a killer app. We need an example of something. We say, look, this is, this now works, right? But you talk to, when I talk to a lot of clinicians, what I find is that the clinicians will tell me, oh, this treatment works. I know it works. It worked for these five patients that I've seen. Whereas, then they say well yeah but have you done the stats have you tested and they say no 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 it doesn't work statistically mm. and what they mean and what what that means if that's if that's an accurate description of kind of how these things are working and then from my talking to clinicians it seems to be although i don't know that anybody's done this specific you know experiment um what you find what that means is that treatment is addressing some specific vulnerability and that subset of patients has that specific vulnerability.
2: Mm-hmm. I see.
1: Now, the question is, what's the vulnerability? What is the treatment doing? And how do we connect those two? And that's literally where the field is right now.
0: Right. So those sets of vulnerabilities, they are uh, known unknowns. We in any given case, exactly. we can't parse them out. We can't say, well, it's A, B, or C with this person.
1: We have some ideas of what they could be. We have some ideas of where they are and what the kinds of mistakes that, or I won't say mistakes, the kinds of vulnerabilities there are. Um, one of the things we did, this is something I did and kind of got me into this whole thing a few years ago, is we started looking at this and identifying first principles in terms of just addiction and just looking at the question, you know, could we identify this from an addiction perspective? And what we found is basically it was all the theories everybody proposed about addiction. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you look historically over the addiction literature, the addiction research literature, and what you find is lots and lots of people saying, well, if you have this problem, you might be an addict. And then somebody else comes along and says, yeah, but I have an addict who doesn't have that problem. Mm -hmm. But that's not the logic. The logic wasn't all addicts have this problem. It was this problem can drive addiction. Mm Mm-hmm. And what we found is that each of those problems that everybody had been, you know, trying to defend in their personal, you know, this is my issue that I'm going to look at, was a fundamental failure mode in the decision, was one of many fundamental failure modes in the decision-making system.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And so I suspect that actually there is a lot of this kind of out there in the literature that's starting, really just starting to be pulled together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so there are many pathways to this one result. Exactly. It's a simple way of putting it. Yeah. That's right. Now, let me ask this question really quickly about identifying what the problem might be. Uh, well, we can't really physiologically pick one of these uh, failure modes and then address it with, let's say, a pill or, or whatever it might happen to be. But we can break the decision-making process and then look at what happens. I mean, you give somebody five shots of Jim Beam and their decision-making process is shot.
1: Right. Yeah, does that help us at all? I mean, we put yes. those people in? Yeah. It does. It does. And in fact, one of the things that, that happens a lot is that, that I think there's, we should um, recognize that a lot of the major breakthroughs have come from doing this to animals. Yeah. That by looking at how the animal, you know, how non-human, of course, humans are animals too, and that how non-human animals make decisions. It turns out they make decisions the same way we do. That's kind of
0: frightening, isn't it?
1: You know, that they actually do deliberate over choices. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that, you know, blew my mind when we started seeing it is, you know, I can show you a rat making a deliberative decision and I can prove that that rat really is deliberating over his choices.
0: Yeah, that's one of my hobby horses actually as a historian. That, you know, there are all these things that a uh, hundred years ago we look back on people and, you know, slavery or whatever and we go, they're barbarians. Well, how could they do that? I think in a hundred years people will look at the way we treat animals and think we're barbarians, but...
1: Yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> it, it's an interesting
0: question. <laughs> more and more evidence of that. So, so do they actually go in and they do they lesion these brains or do they give them substances and then did they, how, how, did, how exactly... Does the, does the do the experiments work
1: well there's lots of experiments that can do that uh-huh. and so um in large part the most useful experiments I think for that have been the ones where um they've actually done recording and they've actually because the technology we can apply to, to animals to do recording to non-human animals is is much closer than mm-hmm. looking at the you know the big fMRI kind of pictures we can do in humans mm-hmm. but also, what you do see is there have been, you know, lesion studies. There have been human lesion studies. Actually, one of the, the most important experiments ever done was this terrible tragedy that happened to a guy named H.M. Yeah, no, we
0: interviewed the woman that wrote a book about H.M. I can't remember uh, Sue her name. Corkin. Yeah, we interviewed her. Yeah. She does
1: wonderful work. Yeah. Um, yeah, and H.M., right? I mean, in fact, it was a shock because at the time, people thought there was one memory system. Yeah. And after HM, they discovered there were multiple. In fact, it was it really was, you know, HM's uh, ability to learn these, um, you know, procedural tasks. That and that's where the term procedural actually comes from.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Was uh, and they called it declarative memory versus procedural memory,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: which is exactly the same terminology as deliberative versus procedural.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because one of the things that's fascinating about deliberative decision making is that it is the same process as memory. Mm-hmm. That is when we imagine the future, we're using the same systems that we use to remember the wow. past. Yeah. And that of course is why it turns out that's why our memory is fragile. I mean, there's all this data on going back to Elizabeth Loftus in the nineteen seventies who you know can show that we can essentially Trick your memory into thinking you've done something, right? By just asking the right questions, Uh and people essentially because because what we do is we construct our memories, right? And, again, we start looking at the brain part of it. What we find is the same brain structures are working uh, in both memory and imagination.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. <laughs>
1: it's really, it's kind of,
0: for, for the historian, that's a little bit frightening.
1: <laughs> you see what I mean?
0: I'm a historian by training, like I say, and that's that's a little frightening. So let me, you know, our time is almost up, but I want to ask you at least two more questions. One is our traditional final question. We'll hold off on that. But you've studied this obviously very uh, intently and seriously for a long time. Um, I guess I would like to know, is uh, everything that you've learned about decision-making, what, what would you say about making good decisions? Have you changed your mind about how to do it? Is there a, is there a kind of simple uh, algorithm, you know, sort of series of steps people should use to make mm. the best possible decision? Or should we like, okay, if you, have a, you know, if you have one of these emotional responses, you want to hold off on that? And, you know, and a good example is, is that I've found uh, useful that I think relates to your research in a kind of accidental way is don't respond to that email now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've had to
1: learn that one too. I actually, I try to have, I try to make sure that I have somebody read that email before I send it. Yeah. So did um, you learn anything? I, I think that a lot of, so the, 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 I think that actually what I've learned and what I've, what I've changed about my decision-making process is I've accepted the idea that these other components are also part of me Mm -hmm. that you know playing a musical instrument or or playing a, a sport or something that's not any less that's just as hard and just as important and in fact that the emotional components I mean one of the things that I think has blown my mind completely has been that the all of the positive interactions as well as the negative interactions that we have between each other are, in fact, driven in large part by emotional systems. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't diminish those. Those are important parts of who we are. And that has actually changed the way I – I don't know if it's changed my decision-making per se, but it's definitely changed the way I look at my decision-making.
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. So this would be like trust your emotions or –
1: recognizing that sometimes emotions are the right thing and yeah. sometimes they're not. I mean, I think the key here is this idea that each of these decision-making systems, each of these action-selection systems is really good. It's not that there's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of talk, you know, I mean, it goes it goes back to Freud, it goes back to Augustine, right? This idea that reason is good and emotion is bad, yeah. you know? And I think that's fundamentally wrong. Yeah. And I think that that, that i I have to admit I had that perspective before I started this you know working on all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff, and as I started really realizing that you know emotions are part of who we are and are in fact they are a key to our normal interactive behavior
2: mm-hmm.
1: right pure reason is not a normal human mm-hmm. and in fact, we call them sociopaths right right <laughs> um. That has changed my perspective on the kinds of things that both I look for in myself and I look for in others. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting.
0: I mean, one of the things that occurs to me after talking to you and looking at the book is that, and, you know, we've talked about Locke and we've talked about Kant and we haven't talked about Hume. One of the things that Hume pointed out when thinking about human psychology is that this notion of the integrated self, of the whole complete, um, you know, uh, what's the, the self, with a capital S, really kind of falls apart under under scrutiny, that there are lots of little me's running around inside me, and they're on different timescales. They've evolved on different timescales. Okay. They I, they they change from moment to moment. Um, right. You know, the mechanisms are all still there, but their content seems to change. And I don't know. That just occurs to me that that. There's, I, there's some I sense agree. In that.
1: I I take a slightly different perspective, which is to say, with Walt Whitman, I am multitudes.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, that the the self that that we are, is this many pieces. And mm-hmm. I think that's an important part because a lot of a lot of discussion of this is either that w- only one of these pieces is yourself,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right, and the rest of it is the thing you're trying to control.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and other people have argued that there are multiple cells and we have to kind of treat them all equivalently. And I think that's wrong. I think that mm-hmm. we need to be, that, that we are greater than the sum of our parts,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but that we are the sum of our parts. Yeah. And that it's all of these pieces are the the being that is me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the way. That's, that's, the way I that's
0: very eloquently stated. I can't do better than that. So <laughs> anyway, like I said, we've taken up a lot of your time. Let me ask our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, uh, David, what are you working on now?
1: Well, actually, I guess what, I, what I'm working on now is we're still, there's a lot of, there's there's a lot of things that we still have to open up. I mean, this is each of these things, each of these systems has its underlying pieces and there's a lot of work there. A lot of work we're looking at now is how do these systems interact? When, when do you decide, how do you decide, what's the mechanism that chooses between them? And then the other thing that I'm working on now is this computational psychiatry story, mm-hmm. this idea of, okay, if we really do understand this system and we can start to point out where these systems go wrong. Can we actually use that knowledge to help people and that's that 's a very open question right now it 's a I'm, big agenda
0: I mean it sounds like you know I talk to a lot of people in a lot of different fields, but yours found, sounds particularly fascinating right now
1: mm-hmm. that like things
0: are things are really changing and it's really it's a good time to be in in this sort of uh, in this sort of um, endeavor it's fun I kind of envy that's
1: the beauty of this stuff it's tremendous fun it it does sound
0: really (laughs) interesting so anyway um, I want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast Um, today we've been talking with David Reddish about his book The Mind Within the Brain how we make decisions and how those decisions go wrong Um, again thanks everybody for listening but I especially want to thank David for being on the show thanks very much David
1: thank you for having me